have a lot to teach tonight. And the challenge is, so I'm trying to finish up that. I've been pretty happy how this has gone. I've really been trying to take a chapter um, at a time. Um, different teachers. We've got a little bit of ringing. Is there? Is the speaker on too loud? Do we need to turn that down a little bit? It's starting to distract me. So, um, some teach us and take uh, much more time and go through even more details. Um, I really wanted to, I didn't want this study to um, broaden out into over a year, that kind of thing. Um, but I will say this passage, there's going to be a lot that we're going to, uh, there's a lot of details that you're probably going to wonder more about. And I'm going to address them, but we won't have the time to take and explain every detail, maybe as you would uh, like me to do. And so let me encourage you as these things, as we go through a lot of material uh, tonight, starting in Revelation 20, verse 7, um, that you can ask me questions afterwards. Many of you have. And if you want to talk further about different interpretations that you've heard, I have some specific interpretations about some of this tonight that even may differ from some of you or from some things that you've heard. They're, they're not new. I haven't made them up. They're common interpretations, uh, and I think they're the most accurate. But they are, they are things that we can agree to disagree on because they're not uh, made fully clear, um, but things that are important as we get to these details of the end of Revelation and the victory in Christ we're going to see tonight described eternal punishment and reward. It's going to be sobering, the um, judgment, the eternal judgment that awaits those who have rejected Christ. But it will be oh so sweet to be reminded of what the followers of Jesus have to look forward to. So Lord willing, we're going to get through some of this tonight. We got through the battle of Armageddon, and as notorious as that battle is, it actually it happens pretty quickly. It's not long and drawn out. It's uh, effective and successful. Um, and the, uh, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are dealt with, thrown into the lake of fire, the first residence. Uh, that will become many, unfortunately, as we'll see um, in these passages tonight. And then Satan... The one behind it all, the rebellion against Jesus Christ, is not thrown in the lake of fire, but he's finally bound and thrown into prison in the bottomless pit uh, for a time. And then we have this glorious, and we're done talking about the tribulation. Uh, Jesus has won, and now we get to talk about the kingdom. The millennial kingdom that, that in which Jesus will reign for a thousand years and the capital city will be Jerusalem. It will be referred to here as the beloved city. And we will rule and reign with him. And I, I just, whenever I think of that, um, I had, and I know uh, Rick has had the opportunity many times to hear from uh, Dr. Mark Minnick. And one message that always stood out to me, he was um, encouraging us to think, what will that be like as Jesus as, as God remakes everything, now we're not to that point, the new heavens and the new earth yet. Uh, but even in this, as 
Um, Jesus comes and has that righteous reign. All of your favorite places, you think of them in the United States or around the world, even Paris, okay? Uh, they'll all be under the reign of Jesus Christ and will rule and reign with him. And who knows what Jesus will have allow us to rule and reign over. Maybe there'll be different districts. Maybe some of you will be, I don't know, the president or... Um, the, the ruler of Paris or these different things. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. We, we're not given a lot of ed, a data or information about that, but it does say that we will share his authority and share his reign. And so the possibilities there are exciting. And it won't be a bit, just we talking about tonight, Rachel's uh, testimony about the broken world that we live in. Man, that thousand-year millennial kingdom, there won't be any of that. It'll all be uh, perfect and, and ruled in a just, righteous way. Folks, it is something that we should look forward to. Um, but really, the details go by very quickly in Revelation. Um, and let's go, ahead, let's go ahead and read through that again, starting at verse 4. Um, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Authority given to God's, to the followers of Christ. The faithful will rule. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, and neither his image, neither had received his mark. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. I'm, I'm reading, I'm going back and forth uh, from the King James and the ESV again in this study right now. Uh, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he or she that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That second death, that second resurrection is the terrible one where the wicked will be revived and they'll be given new bodies too, folks, again, but to experience the, the pain of eternal torment. And it's awful to think about. We don't want any part of that second death. This first resurrection is the one. And that first resurrection seems best to include not just that it includes, not just this resurrection of the martyrs of the tribulation time, but it also is referring back to the rapture. And to both of those resurrections we're blessed to be able to uh, receive our new bodies and to be able to reign with Christ in our robes of righteousness, the garment of the bride. And we're going to talk more about that as well. Well, Satan is dealt with. But then after that, it, just, it doesn't give us much more information. We'd like a whole lot more information about the, what the millennial kingdom is going to look like. And we actually have... Um, you can look at passages in Isaiah, and there's Old Testament passages that describe that further and what that will be like. But it just kind of zoops ahead here to verse 7 and what's going to happen at the end after the Millennial Kingdom. In verse 7, when the thousand years are expired, uh, so I'm going to go back to the ESV, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. That's the city of Jerusalem. And this, folks, ends more quickly than the battle of Armageddon. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Father, this is sobering, but at the same time we rejoice in knowing that these great enemies of yours, the great enemy, not just be imprisoned, but he will be dealt with with full finality. And that there will come a point where we will not have to experience his opposition or deal with him ever again. And Lord, we look forward to that. But help us to realize at the same time that there are many who will follow him rather than Christ who will also be destined for this terrible place. And help us to be aware and to be the witnesses that we need to be because the joy and the um, thrill of being with you forever is also in view here for those who have trusted Christ. Help us to choose Christ and be motivated to proclaim him as we continue through these passages. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, eternal punishment, reward, and Satan will be dealt with. There will be eternal torment for the rebel. But God's going to allow mankind and his enemy one last chance at rebellion. And it's actually almost shocking what takes place here. Not Satan's actions, but uh, what happens, what, what mankind decides in the midst of all this. Now, as we saw this morning, he's in prison for a while, but as we know, that's not enough for us. We don't want Satan just bound and in prison for a thousand years. We want him dealt with. We want him eradicated. We don't want to deal with him anymore. And of course, there'll come a time after this time, this a thousand years, this millennial kingdom where he will be dealt with. But God, verse 7, um, at the end of that time, Satan will be released from that bottomless pit, that prison. And he's going to do exactly what Satan always does. He's not going to change a bit. It's not going to make any effect on him at all being in that prison. He's still going to do what the deceiver does. He's going to deceive. And he's going to do it quickly. And God will allow this one last chance. And it'll be brief, but it's more effective than what you would imagine. And so he's released from his prison and he'll come out to deceive. The nations are at the four corners of the earth. It says here, Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. And really, I think even more than Satan going about to deceive, we expect that. But what's most remarkable of this end times account is that many people, many people who have lived in this wonderful, absolute, really societal perfection of the rule of the Lamb, the rule of Jesus Christ, will still, at the end of a thousand years of this wondrous, glorious reign, will still choose their own way. They'll still, when they have opportunity, choose Satan over the Savior. That ought to boggle our minds, but at the same time, folks, it shows us how, um, how uh, broken we are and how perverted we are in our sin. And the old devil, the old serpent, hasn't changed at all. But the depravity of humanity here is evident. In the numbers that's described here of rebels that Satan is able to amass from all over the earth. Look at the end there. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea, like the sands of the seashore. 
that really should be it's it's surprising to us in one sense because they've had the best of the best the lord jesus as their ruler you know what this tells us then right remember that old saying you probably not it's not as used as much as it used to at least i haven't heard it as much and i'm glad for that because it's totally inaccurate but when somebody would mess up many times they would say well the devil made me do it well what do we find here the devil is taken out of the picture entirely and mankind is still rebelling against God. Folks, the ultimate enemy is within us. And even with Satan out of the picture, man will rebel apart from the gracious work of Jesus Christ in his life. And really, as we continue through these themes of judgment, we might think, wow, is, is it really appropriate or necessary for people to have to go through this kind of judgment and this reminds us and shows us folks people that have had so many opportunities literally to live underneath jesus christ in his reign will still choose their own way and so their punishment and their judgment is just as terrible as it is they have chosen this they have had full opportunity and it's sobering. You have this reference to Gog and Magog. And there's a whole lot that I could say about this. Trust me. <laughs> we don't have time tonight. But it does. It goes back to referencing a prophecy from Ezekiel. Chapters 38, 39. Long chapters that um, describe a, uh, a, a, a enemy a king that is Gog and um, the uh, nation that he rules over Magog that comes up against God's people and uh, is intimidating but not victorious, is eventually defeated. And there's a lot of, diff there's many, many interpretations because in Ezekiel it's not made clear who this Gog and Magog really is. Uh, it's really hard to tell even the vicinity. And, and, and as you probably know, there are many, many uh, opinions as to where Magog is located. Maybe you've heard of the one that um, equates it maybe to modern Russia. Well, where do we even get that? Well, um, that comes actually from Jewish uh, rabbinic literature and tradition, where Magog is described as a people group that was north of the Black and Caspian Sea. And so as people apply that um, location, that is where, in a general sense, modern Russia and the Ukraine are located today. So people think, well, the enemy that's going to come is going to be from Russia and these eastern bloc countries, I think they're referred to as, and they're going to come against Israel but really, there's not enough data to be able to, to say that um, in any sense of surety. And I'm, I'm very careful to not try to identify that when I don't have an actual reference in Scripture here that, that, that convinces me. But anyway, regardless of who that is, why does John reference Gog and Magog here? Is he talking about the same event then that Ezekiel is talking about? Um, I don't believe this should be interpreted as the same event for a very good reason. In the Ezekiel, Gog and Magog is described, let's, let's say the kingdom of Magog, as coming from a specific area. 
It doesn't say where. It may be north. It's coming from the north. If it's from the Black Caspian Sea, whatever north of that, we're not really told. But it is a specific area, wherever that is. And where does this rebellion come from that John describes here? From the four corners of the earth. This is a worldwide rebellion, whereas Ezekiel's description of Gog and Magog is a localized rebellion against um, God's people. And this is a rebellion that Satan will initiate from all over the world. And he's using this Gog and Magog as symbolism, as an illustration of an intense rebellion against God and his kingdom, against Christ's kingdom. And I think that's what John's um, describing here. And I did. I have a quote here from one of our favorites. You remember Dr. Custer, Dr. Stuart Custer? He says, the Gog and Magog mentioned in Ezekiel referred to a northern confederacy of nations that attack Israel. And I think this, this is one of the interpretations of what the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel could be. And I think this is most accurate. He says, that attack Israel and the beast empire just before the midpoint of the tribulation period. Their defeat by fighting and providential disasters probably emboldens the beast to institute the great tribulation of the last three and a half years. And I think that's accurate. The description then of Magog and Ezekiel is referring to a very specific battle that will happen in the first part of the tribulation that will incite the beast and energize him further um, against God's people within the last three and a half years. John's mention here is that this rebellion is going to happen that resembles Gog and Magog, but that's already taken place. And so um, he's going to gather kings and nations from all over the world. Again, remarkable that this many people would turn against the perfect ruler, Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't be surprised. And he seems to be successful. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. God allows them to get right to the gates of Jerusalem. But then after that, um, the intensity here and the uh, concern evaporates because as soon as Satan leads this army getting right up, you can, you can sense the suspense, right? And the intensity. Oh no, they've gotten right up right up to the gates of Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden God just says, your rebellion is done, and fire, even more intense than what Elijah obviously was able to call down, just comes down, and it really, it, this we should view this as God the Father acting. Jesus has already had his victory in Armageddon, and it's almost as if God the Father here says, I'm done with your rebellion against my son, and you're done. And he just, in one motion, they're consumed. They're gone. No more opportunities to rebel against the Son. And here we have verse 10, the devil is finally dealt with, who had deceived them. And that is the best way really to describe Satan, right? He is the deceiver. That is his number one characteristic. He was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur, that terrible place where there'll be eternal torment. Thousand years, the beast and the false prophet are still there, and they're still being tormented day and night in this awful description forever and ever. 
And even those that are spirit. Is Satan spirit? Does he have a body? Probably better to think of him as a spirit. Spirits will be tormented as well. Day and night. Folks, the torment will be continual and eternal and terrible. But it's fitting for those that have rejected Christ. And Satan himself will feel the pain and agony of that rebellion for all eternity. A sobering thought, but it is fully fitting of this great enemy of God and those that have rejected him. This was the place that was designed for him, and he will one day find himself there. But folks, all those that follow after him will find themselves there as well, and that is sobering to us. We want to make sure that we have a relationship with Christ because then what happens next is this final description of the terrible and final judgment that will be complete. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This, think of this as God the Father. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Okay, and what we should see described here, it's the great, the final judgment that will deal with all the wicked. And this description of the, his presence, earth and sky fled away is kind of strange, but basically it's the description of the corrupted earth and heavens and firmament that will find no place of continuation because God is going to eradicate this corrupted earth and replace it with something new. And so all of the old things, the corrupted things, are being done away with. There's no place found for them. And then this terrible, again, description, I saw the dead. These are the wicked that have died and are now being resurrected. They're great and small, standing before the throne. That indicates that they have experienced resurrection. And books, and here is the description of multiple, of many books that were open. Seems best to see these as the books that describes all of their wicked deeds that condemn them. And there's many, many books that condemn them in this regard. But there's another important book, maybe the most important book. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. All of their deeds, their sinful, rebellious deeds, they stand before God with these deeds and all of these books. But there's one book where they're not found that is most essential for your name to be found in, folks. And that's the book of life. And the dead were judged by what were written in the books according to what they had done. They were not found in the book of life. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Basically, uh, the idea here that however these wicked people died, even the most obscure situations, uh, they will be resurrected. Even if it's a, a funeral at sea, God is fully capable of bringing these people to judgment. And then death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Remember, Hades is that temporary place of judgment. It's referred to many times as hell. Hades, um, that's temporary until this final place of judgment, really a holding place. And it's terrible enough. And death, that enemy of life. And it says they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Because they haven't had their sin dealt with through the blood of Christ. Because they rejected him. Folks, we could be there just as easy if it weren't for what Jesus Christ had done for us. 
and we just believe and our sins are cleansed and our sin is dealt with. But these who have rejected him, their sin stays on the books and they're justly condemned for all of this sin. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the one you don't want to be a part of, right? The lake of fire. Death and Hades are temporary. Death is an abnormal condition that God never intended, but man chose through his sin. And one day death will be done away with and we'll never have to worry about it again. Praise the Lord for that. And this temporary place, holding place for the wicked will be thrown in there as well. But then also all of these who have rejected Christ. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he joins Satan and the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire for all eternity. Sobering, sobering picture. A motivation for us to proclaim Christ. Remember this morning what we saw in our study. It's not our responsibility to get people saved. But it's our responsibility to proclaim who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And they make their own choice. And we pray they make the right one. Because of the awful consequences of those who rebel against God. But they had a choice. That's the thing. And they rejected Christ. Well, that's sobering. Well, let's turn to something that's, a little, that's much, much more comforting. And that is what the followers of Jesus Christ, they will experience the eternal comfort for those that are faithful. Verse, now we're in chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Remember, that earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them, and the sea was no more. And at the end of this millennial kingdom, God will remake and reshape the whole. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. And many times we think of our eternity with God as being in heaven. But folks, we need to remember that it will be here on earth too. God's going to remake the earth. So it's not as if, uh, certainly, we're not going to all be in heaven and clouds strumming little harps, but we're going to be able to enjoy a new earth and a new heaven, fully remade, redone in perfection. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Jerusalem before this was the capital city of Christ's kingdom, and that's why Satan and the enemies went up against that city. But well, here is the new Jerusalem that's also remade and will be the city, the dwelling place of God's people. And here, now we get to, some of you remembered on Wednesday, I was talking about the bride of Christ and what actually, the people that actually comprise the bride of Christ. And there was a question mark there. Well, look at how the bride is described here. John sees a city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That city is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, that's strange. How can that be? Well, we actually are going to have to wait till this Wednesday to describe more about this. But I'm not going to put you in suspense that long. 
let, let's go ahead and jump ahead here to chapter 21. Um, and I'll show you, look at verse 10. How can a city be the bride? Well, that's what it says. Well, he repeats that again in verse 10 in chapter 21. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem. Oh, I'm sorry. The end of verse 9. The angel says to John, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Okay, so then he carried me away and he showed me a group of people. He showed me a city. The holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. Well, this is really strange, but look how it's described, verse 12. And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Go to verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and the name the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And this is this new city is reflecting both the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. And so, folks, what's missed many times is the accurate end times description of the bride is both the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. Both Israel, the true Israel of the Old Testament, and the church of the New Testament. And it's there. Many times we, we, don't, we miss that. We don't see that. So the point is, the bride of Christ is the saints from both the Old and the New Testament. And I think that's pretty clear there. And so, then, let's get... We'll, we'll talk more about that on Wednesday. Okay? But let's go back now to chapter 21, verse 2. So the holy city, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, are the saints from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the martyrs of the tribulation, all of the people of God that have followed him, and are truly believers, are all, for all of history, a part of this um, bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Uh, enjoy this description. This is what we're looking forward to for all eternity. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. We won't have to say goodbye anymore. I think we're already a little tired of goodbyes. And here we are reminded that there'll be a time we won't have to say goodbye anymore. There'll be no more death. No more funerals. As a pastor, I'm looking forward to ne never having to do a funeral again. Because there'll be no more death. And neither will there be any mourning or crying nor pain anymore. Contrast that with the eternal pain of the rebels who rejected Christ. Their pain is forever, but folks, we as the, the members of the eternal kingdom will never have pain again. Whatever pain you experience in your body right now, whatever age you are, there come a time where you're renewed and you'll never have that pain again. You'll never have backache. You'll never have to take aspirin or Advil or anything. Rachel, your services won't be needed. Well, not in the way that you are now. <laughs> what, what a wonderful time this will be because the former things have been passed away and they're all renewed. 
Um, I'm going to take some time. Okay, I'm going to take some time right now to address one more thing that you probably weren't even thinking about. But I think is an important detail here in uh, the whole scheme of how these things are coming together. There are some groups, one that I've just mentioned, the Old Testament saints, um, where if you think they're important groups, but um, Revelation doesn't say a lot about how they filter into all this. Um, but I'd like to address these groups now that have been just some information given on the surface about them. Did you ever think about when did the Old Testament saints, if they're a part of the bride, when did were they resurrected into heaven as part of the bride? Well, the rapture, you have the church. And then we have this passage in, oh, at the, at the end, um, of or at the beginning of 20 chapter 20 and remember it described those who had been martyred during the tribulation by the beast and they were at that point resurrected to reign with Christ in his eternal kingdom and there are some interpreters and 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 some that very good interpreters of scripture that feel as if this is also the time where the old testament saints are resurrected because they don't want, they don't want to lump the Old Testament saints in with the church. If if that is your interpretation, I'm not going to argue with you, uh, because there's really there's there's not nearly as much evidence as we would like for when the Old Testament saints are resurrected. But if I look look again at chapter 20 verse verse four, I have a hard time with that, because I don't see the Old Testament saints being mentioned. I see the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, the word of God, not worship the beast or his image. Um, This is the martyrdom of the saints during the tribulation time. Uh, No mention of Old Testament saints. I think really the best interpretation um, and the one that's even bore out in, in a couple passages in the Old Testament and certainly with the idea that the bride is the Old Testament and the New Testament saints is that the Old Testament saints are raptured. They're brought up first. They're caught up before. Remember how the rapture is described? Those that are living wait for those that have already passed away. And I think the Old Testament saints get to go up ahead of us. At the rapture, they meet Christ in the air, and then the rest of us get to meet him in the rapture. Really, that makes the most sense for me and um, as far as the whole progression of things. So that's where I stand on that. Then um, these martyred saints at this resurrection before the millennial kingdom, that's the second group, um, they have, they have uh, died. And remember, their souls were described underneath the throne of God um, earlier in the book, crying out when they would be avenged. And now they've been avenged and they get to rule and reign with the Lamb, just like we will. But have you ever thought about well, who are we going to reign over in the millennial kingdom? Really, if, if you're going to rule and reign, you have to have people that you rule and reign over. Now, I'm going to throw that out to you real quick. Any ideas? If all the saints of God are, have been resurrected at this point from, de- from the dead, and we've been raptured as a church, and the wicked are dealt with, they're not going to go into the millennial kingdom. 
Well, who's there to reign over? Any thoughts? Right, but you have to have parents that bore the children, the mothers. Where do they come from? Are you talking about the thousand year reign? The thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom. Who are we going to reign over at that time? Well, there are people that came through the tribulation. Okay. Yep, that's it. There are those who... And we don't, we don't automatically catch this right away, but folks, there are those that God in his grace will allow to make it through the tribulation. Not all of the saints, not all the believers of Christ will lose their lives. There will be those that will be protected through that. Uh, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and since they haven't died, there's no resurrection for them yet. And so they will constitute then the people that will be uh, ruled over in the millennial kingdom. And then, as Tom said, there'll be children born. And um, so they'll start out all believers in Christ. But in a thousand years, as you can imagine, there's a lot of children being born. And those children will be able to make their own decisions. And very soberly and terribly, many of them will be deceived by Satan at the end. They'll reject Christ. And then they will try, attempt to rebel against him and the fire comes down from judgment and they're destroyed. But those people then is the group um, to which we will rule and reign. We will rule and reign over actual people in the millennial kingdom. And it'll be those folks. Then the final group again is all of the wicked that have died, um, that have been buried and placed into Hades throughout all of world history at this moment, at the great white throne judgment, is when they will be resurrected and they will dealt with. Four different groups here that are important in all of this. We just need to make a mental note about that. And I still have a few minutes here uh, to continue on with verse 5 then. Go back to chapter 21, verse 5, and a further description by um, here uh, Christ or probably actually God the Father and then Christ seated with him. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And God himself says to John, I am remaking everything, and you make sure you get that down exactly the way that I told you it, because you, it's a promise. I'm going to remake all this terrible, uh, broken world. And it'll be wonderful. And it's worthy, it's noteworthy for us to mark all the brokenness of this world and the rebellion against God, right down to our, our gender and people's creation and their rebellion against all of God's authority. Um, all of this will be done away with and everything will be remade and made new. And we praise the Lord for that. Verse 6, he said to me, It is done. Well, who did it? I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which means, again, that's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, which doesn't mean that he had a beginning. It means he, he was eternal before time, and he's eternal till the end. I've been, I've been here through it all. And to those that are thirsty for me, 
I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Didn't Christ, didn't John describe Jesus as the water of life? And here he is reminding us again that those that thirst after Christ will be fulfilled, will be filled for all eternity. They'll be able to be with Jesus. All of us will be able to experience that, that have trusted in him. And you won't have to pay for that water. It's free for the taking. And the one who conquers, that means the one that perseveres and is faithful, will have this heritage. You'll have new life. Your spiritual thirst will be quenched. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And glorious communion with God for all eternity. Folks, in our broken state right now, as we read that, there is probably, there's hopefully a sense in our lives where we're like, I'd like that. I'd like to commune with God. But we're so broken many times, we don't really um, seek and desire that like we should. But we ought to meditate on that. Communion, unfiltered, unbroken communion with God for all eternity. We are his sons. He is our father. Spiritual rest. (laughs) That will be so truly wonderful. But there is the other side of this. And a sobering reminder as we finish up tonight that for those who rebelled, and they're described here in all their sin, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. And again, this isn't describing somebody that's committed one or two of these sins because we're all guilty of these things, but it's someone that this is a pattern in their life because they've rejected God and they've gone their own way and they truly then are immoral. They're sorcerers. They're they're finding other sources of magic, of power besides God. They worship false idols. They lie. They kill. This is their um, method. This is their pattern of life. All of those, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So as we finish tonight... I think the question then is obvious, right? We have two choices. Are we going to choose to follow the Lamb and experience the glories of heaven and communion with Christ and the living water and the new life and all of these things for all eternity? Or are we going to reject Him and experience eternal torment um, and terrible fire and judgment for all eternity? I hope that your choice, and I think, I think I can say this, although I can't know hearts, that everyone in this room, that you've chosen Christ. But if there's someone here that's listening tonight and you've rejected Christ and you've rejected the message and the, the salvation of Jesus Christ, folks, your destiny is terrible unless you turn and repent and trust and have faith in Him. Do that today. And experience the joys of heaven for all eternity. Father, what a blessed thing it is to realize the joy of the inheritance that we will share. New life, communion with you, rest, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more goodbyes as we worship you forever. That is glorious. Father, help us to desire that to desire that above all the paltry things of the world. 
Father, if there's someone here within the sound of my voice who has rejected all that, rejected Christ, and is facing eternal damnation in hell, may today they turn and choose Jesus and choose a wondrously joyful eternity of rest and peace and comfort rather than eternal torture. Father, help us to proclaim faithfully Jesus Christ in his kingdom until he returns. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.